Greetings and welcome. I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy. Really good to have you on board after an absence of a number of months. And it's not by design necessarily. I've been extremely busy with some of my other projects and... A combination of that and some other stuff going on has meant I haven't been able to record shows. However, we are back and we have some really good ones lined up over the coming weeks and months. So I'm delighted you can join me for at least some of those. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can follow us and join the Alchemy community on Facebook and Twitter so don't be shy, come on, say hello. We exist thanks to your kind donations and a big thank you to everybody who does so via our website. We're completely non-profit. All the money that we garner or gain which isn't very much at all goes into bandwidth costs and website hosting and that kind of thing. So no profit whatsoever and we're going to keep it that way. This is not about money or anything like that. So then, on to the show. Thomas Sheridan is back with me on this episode of Alchemy. We've had Thomas on the show a number of times in the past. If you haven't heard of him before, he's an author, artist and filmmaker from Dublin who came to international recognition in 2011 with his best-selling book, Puzzling People, The Labyrinth of the Psychopath. He was one of the first guests on Alchemy and we discussed that book at length. So go back to, I think it's maybe the second or third episode of the show if you want to check that out. He's a former rock musician, corporate communication consultant and stand-up comic. And he's used his arsenal of past experiences to help both himself and others to navigate the often surreal pathological landscape of mayhem and mysteries from history to advertising, dogma to deceptions. These are his words now, not mine. And he can put things far more eloquently than I can, certainly, that we as a human species often find ourselves caught within. Thomas, you seem to be the one who always kicks us off when we've had a little bit of a break and I'm very pleased to welcome you back. How have you been? Oh, I'm great, John. It's been a long time since we spoke, ages it seems, but uh, delighted to be back. Everything's fantastic and uh, always a pleasure to speak to you. Well, would you believe we were in the midst of a discussion the last time about Russell Brand? That's how far back it's gone. Does anyone even remember him? <laughs> I don't even remember the flack that I got at the time. Do you remember the first time me and you met? Um, I do actually. We met at a conference in Dublin, which was one of the first Years kind of ago. yeah, it was one of the first alternative events that I ever attended. And this is going way back. Jeez, it must be, it must be seven or eight years ago at this stage, is it? Yeah, something like that. It was like, it was years and years ago. It was funny that. I was just thinking about that the other day. Yeah, it was a really good event. Unfortunately, there don't seem to be too many events in Ireland these days of that ilk. I don't know whether it's because they're too expensive to put on or the will isn't there, but uh, it, it is a shame because there were some good ones back in the day. Yeah, I think it, you need the right people organising them and those people, they're not around anymore. They've moved on, got families and it, it just happens. You know, it's like a music scene. It has, a, it has its peak and then it goes. That's exactly it. And things tend to come in cycles. But I mean, we may as well talk a little bit about the alternative media scene. We are touching on it there and the state of it. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Thomas? I mean, I think I know what you're going to say here anyway, but... Things are quite a mess in terms of any kind of cohesive, constructive alternative media at the moment, aren't they? Well, 
there's two ways of looking at it, right? On one hand, yes, that's absolutely true. On another hand, a mess and is better than a cohesive structure. I always thought what made this scene so great was the fact that there was no constitution, there was no framework, mm-hmm. there was no guiding principle. It was really just a sort of like a free-for-all. And I, I found that was what gave it its strength because when it has when it has a, no cohesive structure and no constitution, you don't have to worry then about infiltration. And I don't mean necessarily infiltration for sinister reasons, yeah. but like a, a political kind of agenda taken over, you know? And I think that's, you know, chaos ultimately is the engine of creativity and i think that this this collapse in the last say two years particularly in the last few months has been ultimately what was needed because uh, it was there was too many people out there resting on their laurels uh, the, the, assuming that they would have an audience forever uh, not challenging themselves not challenging their audiences repeating the same mantras over and over again and we all know what happens when you have entropy you have decay it's as simple as that that's a very interesting perspective on it because i think there is a little element of me maybe going back to the original paradigm that i was brought up in that being of structure and looking to an external source for the answers and you're dead right that's not what an alternative viewpoint can be about and i think anarchy is what we're ultimately looking for i think it's that word that's misconstrued all the time or misunderstood people assume anarchy means people running all over the place and killing each other and all that kind of thing but it's really just an absence of rulers which is ultimately what we're all looking for we're looking for self-mastery and self-empowerment aren't we yeah, like I'm an old, you know, I'm an old punk rocker. And today I was just looking, it was 40th anniversary of the first gig of Susie and the Banshees. And you don't create that kind of magic out of a formulated idea. Mm. These things have to come from sort of like primal forces of chaos that explode and they they take root. And then from, from that, these kind of fractals of creativity spiral out of them. And that's what, and once you have like a proper grounding in terms of your own personal engagement with these things, well, then you just ride it like a surfboard and you just ride that wave. And then that, that's where the, that's where the magic happens. It doesn't happen because some, some bureaucrat or some journalist said, this is the guiding principles we will follow. And, mm. I, I, and I think that's, that's in put, like you said, it's been put into us by our education system this regimentation well the red this this never produces anything of value i think you're absolutely right about that but something that we are going to talk about that certainly is of value is the latest book i mean you're so prolific when it comes to writing but the latest one is extremely interesting the druid code magic megaliths and mythology gives a brief synopsis because there will be many many listeners who haven't got their hands on this yet and they should do so and you tell us why they should do exactly that well you know, I'm probably best known for writing a book called Puzzling People that was a bestseller about six, seven years ago. And that kind of gave me, that came out of nowhere. And that was like my experiences with dealing with pathological individuals in, in, in corporate structures and then how to basically scale that up to the world, the world issues, how the world is actually being run. And ultimately, it was a survival guide. Now, even with that book back then, 
I was constantly refer referencing the importance of mythology in human understanding. And that's always been a great guide for me. All, all, ever since I could read, I was always interested in mythology. And it was much later on when I came to understand the work of Carl Jung and the American brilliant Irish-American mythologist Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. that I really started to see why I was interested in mythology, because what it was, it was a roadmap to the human condition. Now, on top of this, I'd always been interested in megaliths since a, a, a school visit to Newgrange when I was 11. And it was kind of like a, a moment of epiphany, not on the religious, well, not on the Christian religious sense, is that they took us to see Newgrange and they took us to the Hill of Cara. And I was like wandering around as like 11 years old in this like almost like trance. I couldn't get over what I was experiencing. And then they took us to see the head of the Saint Oliver Plunkett in the cathedral in, you know, his actual head, his decapitated head is in a box, a glass box yeah. inside the cathedral in Drogheda. And I remember feeling violently ill and feeling very sick. And uh, it was almost like, okay, what's on the hill of Tara and Newgrange is right and this is wrong. And the next day in school, we were talking, the teacher was, was going on about Oliver Plunkett. And I just said, well, why can't we can we t can we tell us more about Newgrange and ta uh, Newgrange and the sun coming in the window? And he said, "Oh, that was just a place where they worship the dead." So it was like you know, irony and sex on TV did not exist in, in Ireland when I was eleven. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the beginning. That was always something that interested me. Always fascinated by what they call sacred sites, not just European ones, but also when I lived in America, I went to Indian places and, st and stuff like that. Uh, on top of that, I've always had a, a, a huge interest in magic, and I've often seen these sites as ma magic magic places of, of actual ritual magic. Now, you can say it's a religion, you can say it's theology, you can say it's ritual, but at the end of the day, what something like Stonehenge is, or the Hill of Tara is, are magical enclosures. It's a classic early example of the magic circle. Now, I was thinking about, I was always looking at the two and, uh, you know, this would be sort of like my break away from it would be like talking about the psychopaths and talking about the control structure and mm. talking about things like social engineering. And this would be always be my break. I'd always find me myself drawn to these places over and over again. And I felt within them that there was more truth in that than actually things like politics. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But then it just dawned on me one day that that's what this that's what these things really are. They're 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 not so much magic in themselves, but what we do is we bring our our consciousness to them. And this was brought home to me a few years ago in Avebury in England, where I was I was walking. It was a beautiful summer's evening, and I was hanging out there, and I was looking at what you'd call like New Agers or hippies or you know neo-pagans and they were kind of like chanting and doing kind of like meditations and stuff at the rocks now prior to that i might have thought that was kind of silly and twee and then it just dawned on me that is the reason for these places they're actually charged by human consciousness and then i decided that was the gestation of the book the druid code now in last year i was been traveling around Europe with with James Swagger and we were making a documentary series called Megalithic Odyssey mm. and then I said okay this is the time for me to actually put these thoughts together into a book and that's where the Druid Code came from it was to 
overlay the power of mythology upon these places, but also try to understand through this kind of mythological roadmap in terms of a kind of an analytical psychology of what the Druids were, who they were really beyond the Roman propaganda. And did this ethos or this kind of idea survive throughout human history? And absolutely it did. And that was the purpose behind the book. So when you're talking about magic, I think it's very interesting that you're linking consciousness to these places, these, these physical places as well. Is for you then that what, what magic is? Is it the bringing of consciousness to a place or a collective consciousness to allow something to happen, be it internally, externally or something esoteric entirely? Well, I, I bring magic back to its, its root meaning as the art or the craft. All magic is, is the taking of something in human consciousness and the bringing about of it in reality of something that never existed before. So for instance, John, if you're humming a song and if you wake up one morning and you have this like cool beat in your head and you say, okay, I'm going to go down to the the Roland 808 or the computer, whatever. And then then bang this this out and suddenly you have a piece of music. Well, that music, that's magic because it didn't exist in the material world. It only previously existed in your consciousness. And that's even an amazing thing by itself. How it jumped in there, what made a cause, what might have happened, and then you brought it into the material. That's all magic is. It's nothing else. It's so you can take it from, say, a carpenter drawing, having an idea to build a chair, drawing it on a piece of paper, building the chair. That's magic. Right up to the most powerful magic of all, and that's the altering of human consciousness and how society functions. And and what is wrong at the moment is that we live in a world, and I've been saying this for a long time now, that is under the influence of what I call trash magic. When I say trash magic, it's the advertisers, the marketing agents, the Hollywood publicists. Mm. These are the ones who are in charge of our magical destiny. And this is the fundamental root of the problem that we're facing as a species going forward is that the ones who are controlling the spellcraft are the ones who are not doing it for any other reason than just very base reasons of collecting money. In some cases, it's politics, it's more sinister, but in most cases, it's just purely to fleece us of our cash. And we're never going to have anything productive in our society and our cultures if we continue along this path, which we will anyway. But my attitude is that like, if the, some of us can actually become aware of this way of living. We can jump out of it and make our own lives and our own creativity meaningful. I think that's a really good summation of it. And one that always springs to mind for me as well is the word spelling, as in if you're spelling a word itself. I associate that with a magic spell. So if you have a certain combination of letters, you then have magicked a word out of those letters. So I, I just the word spell, I think, is a, is, a, is a good one for people to get a grasp of as well. And magic doesn't have to always be the Hollywood or the Disneyized version of magic that we're presented with when we're kids. It's something completely different. And you've just described it very, very well, I think. So when you were examining, I suppose, the world of the megalithic builders and that proto-shamanic world, because a lot of people are presented with the Romanized version of what Druids were and what they were up to and why they were building these megaliths and what was going on. You encountered a lot of information to do with lost civilizations and various kind of mythological places and individuals as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how far back the quest led you when you were researching the book? Well, I'd never really been interested in the idea of Atlantis. In fact, I actually thought Atlantis was more of a kind of a... A, a game played by Plato 
that he was really describing the hierarchy of society mm. when he was describing the city of Atlantis. And then a couple of years ago, something quite amazing happened. Like I do, I just crawl around inside caves and in the muck and look for these odd stones. I am fortunate to live in County Sligo, which is 5,000 megaliths just in this tiny county, and which is on the northwest of Europe. It's not on the center of Europe. It's not near the Middle East where we're told civilization began. It's, it's, it's clinging literally to the Atlantic fringe. And these... And then one day I was at this place called Clover Hill, which there is a cairn, which is a type, it's called horn cairns, but it's a type of a, a Neolithic structure that's almost buried now in a farmer's field. But the farmer, to his credit, takes care of it. It's outside the kind of domain of the main uh, Caramore, which is a megalithic site that's actually touristified and everything, which is still quite impressive. And it's just in the field. And being an artist, I'm very interested in rock art and symbolism. And looking at the rock art in there, there was two kinds of rock art. One was called the European Latin type, what it looked like. Now, this is what it looked like from about 600 AD. It's still officially, or 600 BC, from the, which is the official kind of date for this kind of what they call Celtic mainland European style. And, and in front of that was a, the classic Irish sort of like European neolithic artwork of circles and dots and hashes and those kinds of things and then it just dawned on me that the so-called more recent more refined curvilinear art was actually in the back of the structure and not at the front suggesting it was far older and then i'm scratching my head i said i said okay either they brought all these stones here and assembled them like a neolithic art gallery or the artwork actually gets more refined before you go back in time and then it I looked around me and I'm saying, why is all the later Neolithic tombs in Sligo built on top of the hills like Knocknaray, Mulcahy Hill and Knocknashee all around me? And then it dawned on me, there was just an earlier civilization and they moved to the highland. Why did they move to the highland? Well, the water level rose hmm. and this is why. And then I, started, then I started to explore the geology around this area, Sligo, and the shell middens, large amounts of oyster shells up on the mountains, the rocks from the bottom of the ocean up on the mountains. And then it just, it just, then there was one particular amazing find where I discovered that this, a, a Dutch, well, he's a Dutch immigrant to Ireland, a guy called Beringer, Gabriel Beringer, who in Ireland in the 1700s had did a wonderful survey of the Neolithic structures of Sligo. And he said that there was a ring at a place called Tanrigo Bay. It was called Cucullum's Tomb, and it was a stone circle. And I looked in all the, the official registry in the Sligo County Library of this particular structure, and it said that it was destroyed or missing and so I said, that can't be right. So I went out and I found that during extremely high low tide, I located this, this missing stone circle. And then that was enough for me to say, why did they build these things so close to the sea, knowing that the, the sea would probably come in and swallow them? Mm. And then it just dawned on me, when I, especially when I looked at what's going on in Orkney, well, the obvious is here. The sea used to be much further out at one time. And that is, to me what Plato called Atlantis 
called High Brazil and what probably the early English called Avalon. Yeah. It's the land beyond the sea that was swallowed in a mirror and, 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 you know, and, and put under the water. And then the final piece of the puzzle was when I discovered that basically in 2500 BC, and this is a fact, Ireland and Orkney were essentially sterilized of life for 600 years. And this is a... Uh, this, this this made no sense until I understood that it's also around this time that the Sahara became desiccated and also larger structures were being built inland, such as Stonehenge in England. And then the obvious came about, well, okay, maybe there was an Atlantis, maybe there was a Great Flood, maybe there was some kind of cataclysm. What's the next place to look? Then I started to hit the mythology. And where did that lead you then? Because up to this point, that's, I mean, it's just a throwaway comment for me there. Well, I found the stone circle, you know, but you've done extensive research. You have literally walked the ground on this, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I've literally climbed into caves where there was like no gap for me to get through mm. to try and find out like if like if there was a carving on a wall i think i've discovered and located numerous things that have not even in the official archaeological record one of the reasons for that especially in ireland is there's so many of them that they can't uh, they just can't catalog them they just don't have the resource to do it this is why queen maeve's cairn on top of knocknaray one of the largest cairns in the world on top of the mountain has never been excavated they just don't have the resources and uh, there's so many of them in ireland and we have so spectacular examples in the boyne valley in county mead of note and doubt and newgrange and tara that they can't possibly even come out to the west and even do these and that's not counting all the others around the country and that's not counting the ones in england and scotland and everywhere all over the, the west the megalithic arch of europe and this flew directly in the face of this so-called east to west migration that all civilization began in sumer and babylon and migrate migrated outwards in fact that is such an entrenched idea that when a swedish team back in the 1990s began exploring um, the the the, the cairn at karamor in sligo they discovered that one of the so-called tombs was uh, they found underneath it some carbon dated material and they put it at almost 10,000 years old. Wow. When they made this announcement, they were talking, they were talking about Gobleteki era. Yeah. When this, when, this es- when this was made, you would think that the Irish archaeologists would jump up and down and start, wow, we have the oldest buildings in the world in Sligo. They turned around and rib- rubbished it and told the Swedish team to get the right, the right date this time. <laughs> you just can't break out of that paradigm now, can you? Nope. No, and so that was that was it. Then that, 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 there were some all those things. It's a, it's a big really the Druid code is just that. It's a big detective story, really. That's what it is. And it, you know we've all heard about Atlantis. We all hear about High Brazil. We all hear about this ancient civilization that once existed, mm. and all it. But but it's it's been staring us in the face where it is. It is the western fringe of Europe, extending from probably there was southwest Norway, down through Scotland, Orkney, around Ireland, through England, down through Brittany and France, down across into Iberia, Portugal, Spain, and then around into the Mediterranean as far as, as Malta and Sicily, with Sardinia being a major point of it. And that was Atlantis, I, I'm convinced, that, that whole region. And that was devastated in some kind of flood. And I also believe that the flood is very well documented within mythology. Now, people go to the Bible. This is one of the courses of all the alternative scene and one of the reasons I have very little time for it in many ways is that the first thing they hear flood is the first thing they go for is the Bible yeah. right? 
the same propaganda. The first thing they hear of giants is, the first thing they go for is the Nephilim, the Bible, right? There's much more. We have our own sources here that are ignored for the simple reason they don't fit into this, like, this Jesuitical model that has been, you know, spiraled out of the Middle East to enforce this idea of an Eastern-Western migration. For starters, the, 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 the Norse level, the Norse legend of Ragnarok, the end of the world, describes perfectly the destruction in allegory of a, of a cataclysmic disaster caused by a rising sea level. And I believe there's enough evidence in that to suggest that the vast region between England and Denmark, currently called Doggerland, yeah. which is under the sea, was probably the plain of Vigrid, the plain, the plain of Vigrid where the sea levels rose. More amazingly, it was the destruction of this thing was caused by something called the Midgard Serpent. Now, amazingly, there is actually a serpent that wraps itself around the world. It's where the tectonic plates of the planet meet. And its actual eye and mouth is where Iceland and the, and the, uh, the porcupine bank is. That's right amazing. Right in the heart of Viking land. Wow. You know, this is the kind of things you're coming out. And what, you know, and it, you know it's, it's spit fire, it's spit poison, it rose to sea levels, it killed all the old gods and gave birth to the new gods. It gave birth to the world of men. And there was a, a few years ago, a survey was done by the, the new University of Lisbon uh, in collaboration with the University of Durham in England, where they discovered using a methodology of progressing through timelines back and using the same kind of characteristics that they use for DNA, rec DNA classification of plants. They were able to discover using folklore and fairy tales to show that fairy tales and folklore go back to the, the Bronze Age. And they like some like, and they don't have. They have very little breakage in between. It's very similar to the the situation you have with the the Vedas in India. Mm -hmm. They're ten thousand years old. They're passed on orally, and when they found the original the original drafts written down drafts of ten thousand years ago of the Mahabharata, uh, they found that that word for word they were the same. The oral transition was actually more accurate than the written down version, and that's what mythology and is about like for instance i'll give you an example right as soon as 9 11 happened a mythology grew up around it right yeah the mythology being it was a, a it was caused it was an inside job right that was the mythology right whether it's true or not and that's nothing to do with it i'm saying that was a mythology that a mythos that developed right yeah now if that was that story of that went passed on and survived for a thousand ten thousand years and somebody found it they would say, well, the story of the two giants falling down and crashing flames after their own leader stabbed them in the back with two flying swords, right? They would say that never happened, but it did happen. Yeah, yeah, I get and you. It is accurate. Yeah. It is accurate. You understand? Because there's some, the mythology, what the mythology does, it, it sequesters the truth in the subconscious mind, which is very different than the narrative held in the conscious mind and this is why these stories endure forever now i could just i don't want to keep going on about it but i'll give you another example the there's events that irish mythology is full of it right the the god lu the god lu is the god of the long lulam fada the long trailing arm yeah right he's the god of light so he's a luciferian type figure that's not a bad thing by the way it's just what the archetype is yep the long trailing arm Right? That's a comet. Okay. He destroys 
Lou, it destroys Balor of the Evil Eye. Balor of the Evil Eye in the Battle of Maitura in South Sligo is slain by Lou of the Long Arm. He falls forward and a single eye burns a hole in the earth that creates what's a lake there today called Loch Nassul. This is an exclusive for you, John. I had a diver go down the lake last week and what did he pull up? Volcanic and meteorite rocks that are burnt. I'm going to make a video on them soon. Wow. Loch Nassul empties out every every 40 or 50 years and it used to be an, ama- an amazing event in Ireland. People travel all over Ireland to see the loch emptying, the lake of the eye. It's an impact crater. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so incredible so- stuff. Yep. And, and also, if you, there's so many things like this, right? There's, there's, there's a, we have all these, these things in this part of Ireland called court cairns, originally called horn cairns, right? Yeah. They're all facing more or less in the same direction. Why would they build them? Were they air, some kind, was this, 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 this cat, the cataclysm that fell from the skies, right? Did, did that, did it have recurring things where people had to take, take shelter in basically air raid shelters? Mm-hmm. This Ireland is full of things called souterrains where you literally, there's no reason for them. They couldn't store food in them and rot right away. They look like they've been designed specifically to go under the ground quickly. They're all over the place. This kind of idea. Now there's other stories like that. There's, there's, there's a story in this part of Ireland of the, of the black pig. This is a really good one. Mm. The black pig was a giant pig that rose out of the sea at Enniscrone in County Sligo, made its way across Ireland as far as, as uh, Lout, went back into the sea and came back again until it was driven back out, right? In its wake, it carved valleys out in Donegal called like the Black Pig Valley yeah. uh, on Pignamucca, and then all these trenches through Ulster. It left in its wake poisonous bristles which sterilized the ground and, and, and killed any man who tried to to grow on it. It was a tsunami. Wow. Absolutely, it was a tsunami. The Black Pig Tsunami. And I mean, what, what, what a big one that must have been then, of course, Louth being on the other side of the country, quite literally. Well, it had also kind of like psychological repercussions. It cut Ulster off from the rest of Ireland and probably gave the people up there an enduring identity that they were different than the rest of the Irish. Well, that certainly endured. Yeah, that's the psychology of it. This is classic Jungian psychology, that these things, these traumas in the past have recurrent ongoing effects that never end, that they go, well, they don't, they don't, they, don't, they never end until they're addressed. So you could have like, a, the mythology must be kind of resolved in some way. And this is where like everything from Kukulin, the Red Branch Knights, the Red Hand of Ulster, and the idea of this large, there's, there's, there's these large trenches that run across Ulster, that they were literally as late as the Bronze Age, as early as the Bronze Age, they were trying to build trenches trenches to connect this to separate Ulster from the rest of Ireland it was psychologically almost like put into them and it was all brought about by a disaster now this is this is this is trauma this is trauma affecting a society and this is where mm. the druids come into it the, the, what happens is let's let's look let's look at it this way when the neolithic period when the megaliths were built in the neolithic period right Many people have, and it's the same time the pyramids are built in Egypt, many people believe that human beings had basically a very different mind than they do now, what Carl Jung called a free association mind, in the sense that they didn't have a complex language. They could communicate through almost, I wouldn't say telepathy, but through eye movements, 
an understanding, mm-hmm. a free association. You can actually see it in some tribes today. You can see it in Roma gypsies. You ever see Roma gypsies communicating on the streets of like Dublin or any city? You'll see they still have this ability to talk without having to use words. I think it's so, where the old, um, the old wink and the nod comes from. Yeah, exactly. If anyone's ever had a dog, you can have a conversation with a dog just by moving your face a certain way. Mm. You know, he knows exactly what you're thinking and yeah. you know what he's thinking. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. Now, when these catastrophes happened, this was the creation of the ego. The ego create was created by it. The ego was a, a, a survival mechanism in order to deal with it. Prior to that, we had these proto, we would have had these proto-shamanic type holy people. Then the sudden catastrophe takes place. This Atlantean catastrophe takes place. It it destroys the megalith, the world of the megaliths. When all the, the tsunamis fall back and everything is cleared, what's still what's the only thing that human beings have that is that's still standing? The sto- the great neolith, the great megalithic stone structures. Then people have they need coaching almost. They need they need they need stewardship to order to survive so society goes on and this is the emergence of the druids and the druids create the folklore to get people through this but also at the same time developed the consciousness of the western man because literally this the sub the, the, the trauma was the trauma had broken into a paradise and the children of nature had been disrupted and what they needed was humanity rebuilt from the bottom up and the purpose of this was language art communication, storytelling, and even social structures developed from that point on. Now, they didn't have the language to describe. They didn't have words like tsunami, Mm. comet. They didn't have these kinds of language, tectonic plates. But they could explain them in such a way like fairy tales, folklore. They're less traumatic. They're easier to understand. And they're kept, they're sequestered within the subconscious mind. There's a book from the 1970s called The Uses of Enchantment by an American psychiatrist called Bruno Bettelheim, who showed that like all European fairy tales are nearly all about horrors, things like pedophiles, rapists, and so on. Yeah. But you can't say to a child, there's adults out there who want to have sex with you. There's men out there who will rape you. You have to turn them into you know, wolves and, and things like that. Mm. Excuse me, wolves and things like that. And so the druids were the first ones to ever do this. And they literally were getting through human society. And the proof of this is, the proof of this is that their legacy endured right up into the Christian era. And they actually helped Ireland. Now, this is, a, this is another topic we'll go on to that if you want. They actually helped Ireland transform into a Christian nation without the same kind of convulsions or genocides that took place in, say, England or in, well, Britonic England, Britain, yeah. Celtic Britain, or Saxony, when you had like the, 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 or in Prussia, where you had the extermination of the Prussians, the, 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 the original Prussians by, during the Prussian Crusades. They actually came, see, people think the Druids are like, a mystical group from the past. They existed central to Irish life until the Renaissance. These are not like something that was a mystical group that didn't, you know, that may or may not existed. These were these were the the fathers of of Irish and Gaelic and many Europe Celtic what they call Celtic societies with a small C around Europe. These were not like some kind of airy fairy Gandalfs. These were very, very real people with a very very real purpose and yeah I think it would be very interesting to look at how Christianity did manage to take a hold and such a stronghold then in Ireland because growing up in Ireland as I did and as you did 
I mean, we're told about the story of St. Patrick and a shepherd from Wales comes across and just convinces everybody that the Christian way is the way forward. We don't have these tales of big battles and bloodshed and the, the rest of it. So what did go on there? I mean, what what is the story of St. Patrick? How did Christianity come and how did we get from a place where we had these Druids who were so central to that shift of consciousness that you've described to the place where we had eventually a Roman Catholic society with an incredible grip on modern Ireland? We have to go back to AD 60 in Roman Britain during the Iceni revolt led by Boudicca. During the revolt, the Druids of Britain assembled in what we call today Anglesey. And the Roman, the Roman general, Suetonius Polonus, and also Roman society in Britain had been, and also Roman society around Europe had been shaken to its core by the Iceni revolt, which ultimately failed as Boudicca and the Iceni were, were defeated. But the, the aftershocks basically was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Suetonius Polonus realized that the Druids were the main problem. These were the ones given the Britons the power, shall we say, to stand up to Rome. And they le- he led an army across the Menas Straits in, in Wales to Anglesey. And there, in a, in a series of battles, but one cataclysmic battle, reportedly defeated the last of the Druids. Though many would have probably escaped to Ireland across the Irish Sea. Yeah. But defeated them. And that was the end of the Druids in Britain. The Druids in Ar- and that's and also if you ask the average historian, when did the Druids end? AD sixty, as if they, they didn't exist in Ireland. You know this whole classical worldview that like whatever the Romans or Greeks say, that's the end of it. Yeah. And so but they ended in Britain in terms of their power, but they still existed as a powerful force in Ireland. Now they would have been well aware of what happened in Britain, and they knew Rome was coming one way or another. And when Rome basically ended its time as an imperial structure and moved towards more towards a, a theological one in the early emerging Catholic Church, there's, a, there's, there's tremendous evidence to show that the Druids of Ireland basically co-opted Christianity before St. Patrick. Actually, no, there is evidence to before, Christ, before St. Patrick arrived. There was a, an incredible individual called, we, now, we know today now as St. Kieran. St. Kieran was allegedly the son of a carriage, a chariot maker from Ratcrogan Crucon, which is a major Neolithic site in Ireland, which is the centre of Queen Maeve's kingdom in County Connacht. It's in, it's in and around Tulsk in County Roscommon today. Mm. It's in bits, actually. It's, but it, when you actually start to examine the place, it's, it was, you can easily see it was a vast city at one time with a surprising amount of it under the ground. He left there in the story tells us that he went with a sacred bull. Now the bull, bull veneration is incredibly important in pre-Christian Europe, in what they call pagan Europe. He took the bull to a Christian abbey, we're told. He slaughtered the bull, skinned it, and then made a vellum to write the gospels or the book of Duncow later on, on the vellum in order to bring Christianity to Ireland. And then at Clonmacnoise on the river Shannon, at the spot where the god, the goddess Shiana is supposed to be dismembered or destroyed, he built Clonmacnoise monastic settlement right in the centre of Ireland and began preaching the Gospels. But it, it was a different kind of Gospel than what Saint, the Romans were up to. It was an early form of kind of Gnosticism. Now, what happened was St. Patrick arrived 
in Ireland. And immediately he arrived to a country that was already been essentially Christianized, Christianized in a pagan tradition. Now, we see this happens all over the world. It's not unique to Ireland. If you look at Portuguese and Brazilian Christianity, Haitian Christianity, the, the, proto, the proto versions of those Christianity are very, very much pagan in its, in, its, in, its, in its ideals and concepts. You see that a lot in places like the Creole culture in the Caribbean and in places like New Orleans. So it wasn't unique to Ireland that it was a paganized version of Christianity. He came, St. Patrick was anything but a poor, simple uh, shepherd boy. He came from a well-to-do Romano-Britain family. Patrick is simply Welsh for patrician. He was a big shot on the Roman uh, system. He, he was, the, in, in fact, he was the Henry Kissinger of the Roman Empire. He came to Ireland with a bag of gold to buy up armies to and to basically Romanize Ireland, which is exactly what he did. But this schism lasted for hundreds of years. There was this strange battle in Ireland. This kind of like super, it was a combination of supernatural and uh, mystical and administrative between the St. Patrick Christianity operating out of Navan Fort in uh, Armagh, which is the centre of the Irish Church today, both Catholic and Protestant, and also at Clonmacnoise. And if you, you can see the two versions of Christianity in basically in, in what we should say in a kind of a, a locked together who will control Ireland. And the Druids had totally infiltrated the, the, the Christian church in early, the early Christian church in Ireland to the fact that it was literally a druidic, a druidic structure. St. Patrick was so, had such a neurosis about this that he only accepted priests that were ordained within Navan in Armagh, Navan Fort in Armagh, where he was and nowhere else. And he said, no one else can practice the gospel. And this was the reason why the druids I mean, they drove the early Christians from the, from, the, from the east in the Roman Christians in Ireland saying to the point where almost a thousand years later, 900 years later, a smoking gun exists in the book of Ballymote and here in the county Sligo, which still shows the fear of Druids. This is 1360 mm. years later. I mean, you're talking about, you know, after the Norman conquest where they have like a book, a page in the book of Ballymote warning of Druids. And here's how to decipher their, their secret script, their own. And here's how to decipher the, the, the Fortec runes, the, the ohm of the Vikings. Christianity had barely, was barely hanging on in Ireland, even after the Roman occupation. Why? Because the Druids had entered the Catholic church. They had become very powerful and they had slowly disrupted the Romanization of Ireland. Now, this went on, this went on until, you know about the flight that the Earls, he told us in school, yeah. 16, the, six, turn of, this, the turn of the 17th century, the last of the Irish um, Gaelic families were, were, were defeated and they went to Europe from Cork that the O'Neills and all these guys, they went mm. and they settled in France and, and in Italy and in Spain. That's when it ended, and that's the real control of Ireland by the Catholic Church, ironically, took place after the Renaissance. And this is when it really happened, and that's when we, that was the beginning of the end, because it then allowed the English church structures, first the Catholic and then the Protestant, to completely and fully Christianize Ireland. That's absolutely incredible, and it's so far removed from what we're brought up learning. I mean, we're not really taught anything 
when it comes to our own history in Ireland. And certainly in my experience, we're told what we consider to be at the time, at the age of six and seven, these fairy tales that mean nothing to us. And those that are teaching us, of course, I mean, we could talk about the, the education system till the cows come home. We won't bother with that. But everything is just touched on, but there's no depth whatsoever. I mean, the teachers haven't a clue what it is that they're reading out of these books. But if you know how to decode it, as you have just done for us there over the last while, there is actually such a rich depth of history that can be accessed if somebody is willing to actually stick their neck out and do a bit of research again, as you have done. But this is also what makes it dangerous because it undermines the prevailing power structure. In the same reason, in the United States, if you were to ask the average American who discovered America, they'll all, 90% of them will say Christopher Columbus, yeah. even though there are Viking settlements all over the place. And it, every, everybody from the Irish to the Welsh to the Vikings to the Chinese discovered America. And even Clovis, man, you know, back in the Mesolithic yeah. era that discovered a bit in the United States, but they will still say it because the the mythology has to have a a kind of a political mandate. And when it loses the political mandate, it becomes dangerous. You were talking about, do you remember when we were taught the legend? I don't know how old you are, but I remember when I was taught the Irish mythology in school, it was done in the Irish language. It was never taught to us in English. And I remember I uh, growing up in the north side of Dublin, I had a lot of difficulty understanding language, or the Irish language. It was my first language. Mm. And here I was here with the two of the Danon, the, you know, the Firabogs, then all the stuff like Queen Maeve. And it was being taught to us in Irish. Well, it was and the exact was same with me. I'm 37, Thomas, and it was the exact same with me. It was all in our Irish readers, as they were called. So this was for us to learn the Irish language. None of us had a clue at the time how to speak Irish properly because it wasn't taught as a language. And these concepts completely drifted over our heads. Yeah. And then, it's, then and even, even, the, even the things like, uh, the things, you know, the things they hide, right? It's like, not that they hide them, but they don't big them up. Like they big up the most stupid things, right? Like here in Sligo, right? Right. We are live. I'm living in the Valley of the Kings of megaliths, yeah. right? Now we don't have a lot of megalithic art, like they say they do in Malta or in. But that's. I'll tell you another story about Malta in a few minutes. This is, this is not just an Irish story. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, what's the big thing here? Uh, you know, a place where a GAA player grew up, a, a, a house where a fiddler who was barely known outside his village has a museum built to him. And yet we're sitting on, you know, these incredible structures and we, we're, we're, t we're basically told, oh yeah, that thing was built by, well, you know, cave then. Yeah. Nothing. You yeah. know, and we're not told they're aligned. You know, for instance, I'll give you a good one, right? The Irish Round Towers, I'm absolutely convinced are pre-Christian in origin and I presented evidence in the book. Mm. You know, the classic Irish Round Towers, that are all they're supposed to be built by Christians. You know, they're all these big with the conical caps on the top. There's yeah. something like seventy-two of them left in Ireland. Uh, that they're all over the country, right? We were told that they were built after the arrival of Christianity, and they looked away. They looked to protect, stop the Vikings yeah. from taking them down. So one day, I'm, I'm one day I'm looking at the Rock of Cashel, right? The place has absolutely been destroyed, right? Yeah. Except for the Round Tower. Then I start looking around Ireland, Glendalough. The place was, when Henry VIII dissolved the, the monasteries of Ireland and Britain, he had the monast monastic buildings destroyed, but yet the round towers were left standing. The easiest ones to take down. All you have to do is light a fire at the bottom of one of them, they'll fall down. It's called undermining. Yeah. They were left standing. Why were they left standing? Here's the answer, John. They were not Christian buildings. 
simple as that. They were not built by the Christians. And here was the, and I, I, I looked into this, and I, there was, and I found some lots of stuff that was kind of like vague. Some guy was, there was some book, a guy called McNeil, at the turn of the century, said that they were built by the two of the Danon. And I said, oh well, let me see, let me see, and look into this. There is, and then I, there's a document from, literally within a couple of years, a record of St Patrick arriving in Ireland that talks about an earthquake damaged fifteen towers. 15 towers around the country. Okay. Are you telling me they built 72 structures that would have been the skyscrapers of Europe at the time, mm. have nothing comparable within the four or five years that St. Patrick was in Ireland? Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, bullshit absolutely right? bullshit. Bullshit, right? There's nothing else like them in Europe. They're completely unique to Ireland, right? They're built to remarkable engineering quality. When, when the... The Christian churches that were built at the same time don't exist. Why? Because they were built of wood. Yeah. They didn't have the stone, the technology. To, if so, if the early Christians could build these skyscrapers of the of you know as skyscrapers of the of the early Christian world, if they could build them, how couldn't they couldn't build a stone church? Yeah, exactly. And then you start look, and then I say, well, what's the proof that Christian? They're aligned to the cardinal points. Well, let's test these theories. I went to one, two in Mayo. Immediately got the compass out. Uh, I can show you the pictures and the videos. The, the doors are not allowed. The windows are not aligned to the cardinal points. In fact, they're several degrees off. And that's if they're, they're randomly. Some are aligned, some are not. The one in Kalala County, Mayo, has to be seen to be believed. It's, it's, you could literally put a spirit level on it today, and it's perfectly straight, right? Amazing. This thing, is, this thing is, is 1,500 years old. Underneath it in the middle is a tunnel that goes under the ground. And where does it go to? A Neolithic terrain nearby it was built by the same people who built you know the same race yeah. who built Stonehenge Stonehenge sorry Stonehenge, yes, maybe Stonehenge uh, Tara Newgrange and now just it was a later technological version the Christians came along and said this is ours and there's not one single Christian document in Ireland that describes the commissioning or the or the veneration of one of these towers from scratch they all appear from scratch. And this is why with the dissolution of the monasteries, the round towers were not pulled down because they were not Christian buildings. They were secular buildings. And it was only in the last 100, 200, 100 years or so that the Christians in Ireland made a specific thing. Oh, no, they're Christian. Only because people started asking questions about their true origin. Yeah, and it's a very easy way of hiding something right there in plain sight. And people will always follow the prescribed narrative. Yep. And these are, these are druidic sites, right? So... They say this, every, just about every ancient church in Ireland is built on the Druidic centre, yeah. with the exception of Ratcrogan in County, I'll get to that another, another time, Ratcrogan in County Roscommon. Tara, Navan, you know, uh, they all, they're all church sites, they all go on and on and on. What all the holy wells we have around Ireland, the Christian holy wells, they're yeah. all ex-Druid wells. This is repeated everywhere. So naturally, the Christians arrive, they take over, they see these round towers, they say, we'll build them a monastery next to them. Sure, this is already a sacred ground to the pagans. They'll come and they'll, they'll accept this more if we build them to build beside it. Yeah, yeah, it, it's incredible when you put it that way. It really is. Yeah, yeah I mean, you go, you go tonight and you see if you can find any evidence in any library in Ireland. And I guarantee you that they're telling you the showing that the Christians built these round towers in Ireland and not one, you will not find a single document. In the oldest documents, 
they talk about the towers in existence. And as I told you, in the oldest document of all, they just mentioned casually that the, that 17 of them or so were knocked down by an earthquake. Yeah. And what you say is absolutely true because growing up, I've been to many of these sites, uh, particularly on school trips, and you're told, yeah, that's the round tower, exactly as you've described. Um, The Vikings are on the way, so all the monks hide in the round tower and they can see who's coming. Yet, all the small buildings are completely decimated, but the round towers endure. And as you say, they should be the easy ones to take down. Like, if you apply Occam's razor to that alone, it's going to lead you in the direction that you've just led us there so eloquently. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're opening my eyes to something absolutely fascinating here. This is incredible uh, stuff. And to go into a round tower to survive the Vikings is a certain death sentence. <laughs> of course All you have to is. do is again light a fire at the bomb. Exactly. All you have to do is look at these things. For anyone who hasn't seen a round tower, if they haven't looked them up online or seen them in person for all the world they're like a, a kind of a, a needle they look a little bit like a needle going going up into the sky and you're not going to hide in there it's the most obvious place as you say the skyscrapers of europe at the time if you wanted to hide you'd go anywhere but inside that round tower yeah some of them are 120 feet high yeah it's, it's incredible a, that's, a, that's a time when the rest of europe were living in wooden houses what do you think they were then, or why were they built? Did they have a specific well, purpose? Was there some kind of energetic reason for them being built, perhaps? Um, well, now we're getting into the real meat. About a year ago, it dawned on me. It was actually the day that I came with the title for the book, The Druid Code. Mm. I wanted to see a stone, a standing stone, in a, in a remote beach in northwest, northeast County Mayo called Carachanassa Standing Stone. And an absolutely beautiful day, a golden sandy beach, uh, classic Ireland, you know, green hills and mountains in the distance, plunging into the Atlantic, a gorgeous empty sand, golden sand beach going forever, uh, way, uh, porpoises out in the beach, out into the bay and everything. Couldn't have been more perfect Ireland. I, I find a stone in the middle of the field. The field is basically a bog and all around the stone are what? blazing grass the grass growing like crazy around the standing stone right after a certain distance bogland so there i am looking at this and then i'm what i'm doing is i what i do is i bring my measure i bring my, my my compass my measuring thing and i have a an audio meter which i use to see if there's any kind of audio thing of these stones and i got you'll see when i made the, the documentary made uh, the Megalithic Odyssey, some remarkable audio that we got in West Kennet Longbarrow, well, Longbarrow in, in England. And so I'm sitting there just sitting there and I'm putting my arm around, around the standing stone, which is, it was just quite tall. And, I, and I'm suddenly I'm feeling an electrical charge on the inside of my arms, almost like static electricity. Right. Now I'd felt this before and this at other places and discarded it. This was remarkably strong, right? So then went from there to a, a double kind of enclosure down the same road heading towards Kalala in County Mayo. Uh, we're talking bog roads, a very beautiful part of the place. And there's also a, an ohm stone, which is portly an early Christian stone, again, that has a, a specific type of script on the side, which is ohm script. And uh, this is the earliest form of, of writing in Ireland. And this thing was this, built of the same stone. I put my arms around that and then I'm getting the same charge. Now, what's weird about that one is, even though they claim the writing is early Christian, they, even the experts ex- ex- admit that the stone itself is probably from the Bronze Age. So it's ancient. It's much older than early Christian. Mm. In fact, I'd say it's from the Neolithic. 
Then there's a double to, a double court enclosure, and there used to be a, a, a ring down further. And I'm, I'm walking around this place further down the road, and there's these it's beautifully polished boulders. And at the back, there's one stone that's made out of the same stone that the carriage of NASA standing stone is made out of, and the 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 ohms, the the ohm stone further down the road. And then I know it's a different color again, and it even has appearance that has been worked again. The archaeologists completely ignore it; they don't even mention it. I go over to it, I put my arms on the side, again, I feel this charge. Then I realized, when I look into the distance, that there's Kalala Round Tower. Kalala Round Tower and the standing stone of Karachanasa and all the megaliths in between formed a perfect line, as if they were formed and built along the same energy grid. A, a straight, not a straight line, but more, you know, in the same path. And mm. then the first thing I'm thinking to myself, could this be a symbol of an early pagan pilgrimage route, walking along, you know, taking a pilgrimage? That was the first thing, because you very much get that at Avebury in England. It was a processional kind of experience between the between the circle, you know, the Sanding Stone Circle at Avebury and West Kent at Long Barrel. You get this impression of procession. And I'm thinking, I'm getting all excited about it. I'm thinking to myself, is this the same thing? Have I discovered something here? Again, there's feck all in the in the, in the writ, in the official documents. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a standing stone here, there's a, and that's the end of it. They don't they don't they, they see it. They study everything in isolation. Getting into Kalala, that's when I really began looking around the uh, the, the, the 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 round tower, and I realised that that had the same kind of vibe to it, the same kind of charge, and it was built on top of an enormous rock outcropping. So then I. I I knew that the that the the suit terrain was in a churchyard. This is the tunnel under the ground yeah. that led onto it. And so I broke into <laughs> I broke into the churchyard. <laughs> I bumped over the wall. There's all the, the do not enter signs. Yeah. I went through the graveyard. I located it, the hole, and I got into the ground. And I went through, and it was all full of water, so I couldn't get through the. The tunnel because it was flooded it, so and you know it, it was just disgusting anyway so it was like muddy and full of like uh, bat shit and everything so it was uh, hy- uh, hygienically it was <laughs> lovely <laughs> yeah so that's so then it just dawned on me they're all the same infrastructure they're all the same infrastructure now it's been shown by an american by s- several american researchers and also by an article within the New Scientist magazine from early 1983, that there seems to be, this is not even, a, a, this is not even a, a theory, bizarre currents of electromagnetic energy around these kinds of stru- structures. That they, there's one, there's one there, that they, they, they move in different ways. But what's specifically important about the round towers is, wherever they're planted, there's high yields of grass, and the standing stones around them. Right. As if they're charging the ground with some kind of organite-type energy uh-huh. that's taken from the air. And they're actually machines, though they may have a kind of a religious purpose, a spiritual, ritual purpose, yeah. but it's been shown on where they are from Loch Erne down to Organish Island that they, the grass around them, and the farmers have known for years, grows better, and they bring their cows to these spots to feed on the grass because it has high product productivity and the cattle grow faster and stronger quicker. 
Now we may be getting to the secrets of how they build structures like Stonehenge. Perhaps there's some kind of energetic force within those stones that actually makes humans stronger, yeah, healthier, and maybe even cognitively more creative. Well, put it this way, if somebody discovers that there's water under the ground and they decide to build a well from stone so that they can access that water, that's, some, that's a concept that we can all very easily grasp. Um, someone of three years of age can understand that. So why is it any different to discuss using stones or any other material on an energetic level? To me, it makes complete sense as well, but so many people have great, great difficulty with that idea. Well, anyone who studied a crystal, built a crystal radio set and extracted and put a, a, a piece of crystal and you can put a headphone to it after you build it yeah. and actually listen to radio stations coming in through a stone mm. could not dispute the fact that stones are capable of carrying energy. They are. They absolutely are. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason even that so many churches, for example, are built of granite and certain types Have of stone. Spires. They've spires, exactly. I mean, they look for all the world like receptors or transmitters or something that energy can pass through or a conduit for some kind of energy and they're built in specific places. And I mean, this to me just makes complete sense. But it's information that I had no idea about until we started talking about it, Thomas. Like, my mind is blown right now. Well, let's take that. We, you say, I'm glad you brought up the churches. Okay, they're bell towers, right? So let's take let's let's take a, a magnificent cathedral like the Dom in, in Cologne, right? Yeah. The bell isn't at the top of the tower. There's still like hundreds of feet of tower beyond the bells. Yeah. Going to a point. Why is this? Where did that come from, right? Mm. Now you look into it further. In my book, now the book, the Druid Code, it really is a big book in terms of its its scope. I mean, it's, 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 it's 80,000 odd words and I made it heavily indexed because I'm telling a story here in terms of, shall we say, a detective story unraveling. I actually believe, and, and this, this actually, and it can be, it's actually been verified by, I'll tell you who in a minute, that the original Freemasons came from the Druids. The Druids took the secrets of the stones with them and brought them into Freemasonry. I used to believe that this idea was nonsense until I found a remarkable letter written by none other than Thomas Paine, the English-American philosopher. Now, if anyone who's haven't heard of Thomas Paine, he wrote a book called Common Sense, which basically what the Enlightenment was born upon. Yeah. But he also was the man who coined the term the United States of America. He was one of the greatest thinkers of our time. He was also a Freemason. He openly states in this in this, in this document that the Freemasons were the direct descendants of the Druids of Ireland, Italy and England. No doubt about it. Wow. He's, he's quite clear about it. He also says that uh, there's other documents out there. The, er the, the earliest branch of the, 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 the Yorkite Freemasonry in their earliest branches in London and in Yorkshire state beyond the doubt that they were founded by the Druids. They are the, they're not saying they were inspired by the Druids. They are not saying they were, you know, they came about because of the Druids. They, are, they literally say, we are the Druids today. We are the, we are the Druids. We, we, we survived. Now, this is, these were the ones we know built the great cathedrals of Europe. 
they built the great cathedrals and the great sort of like public buildings of Europe. Look at the Enlightenment even. What did they build the great buildings of the Enlightenment? Like something like the Capitol Building in America, yeah. Notre Dame Cathedral, well, the later version, Notre Dame Cathedral, and so on. These people were all heavily involved in Freemasonry. They knew the secrets of the stones. Mm. And this had been carried on from the same builders of the Round Towers of Ireland. The same builders. In fact, one of the evidences, one of the evidence used to suggest that the Romans built or that, that the Round Towers were not pre-Christian Ireland was that they used a mortar made from, I think, ox blood, very significant, and lime and sand, which was a Roman-style mortar. But... The Freemasons of Wales said that that was stolen by the Romans, that the, that the, that method and that use of mortar using ox blood for plasticity already existed and the Romans stole it. The Romans stole that mortar from the Druids. And is it's that all- elasticity, that's the, uh, that's the significance of using the ox blood or is there something deeper there? Well, I don't know enough about making cement, but I think there's <laughs> something deeper because... Bull veneration is in, but before the creation of of, of Christianity yeah. in Europe, if you were to ask what a bull, a god was, it was either a bull or some other horned animal. Mm. But very often a bull, very often a, the bulls were the Mitraism. It just goes on and on. The Nuragic temples of Sardinia, which I've explored, they're they're basically bulls' heads. They're built in the shape of bulls' heads. It continues to this day with things like bullfighting in Spain and Iberia. Yeah. Bull veneration was the center, uh, the center of, the, of religion, shall we say, before Christianity. So that may have been a symbolic aspect to it, going back to St. Kieran at Rakrogan when he sacrificed a bull for the first Bibles written in Ireland, this kind of thing. So it may come from that. But even so, the fact that the earliest Freemasons and some of the, I mean, not Thomas Paine, one of the most important figures in the history of Enlightenment, saying that his Freemasonic orders are direct descendant of the Irish Druids, the Irish, British, and Italian Druids. I mean, there it is, a smoking gun. This guy is considered one of the great thinkers of our to- of history. Where he's like anyone who's ever read anything on philosophy or any on political or other kinds of social structure hold this guy in very high regard. He's the, like I said, the man who coined the, the term the United States of America, and here he is outright coming out and saying that the Freemasons were the Druids. Yeah. So where do you think? It leads us to now then, because there are so many people who are going to say, well, none of this actually matters, Thomas. So what? We, we, we don't really care about our past. What can we learn from it now? Now, I happen to disagree with that, but I'd like to get your take on it. What lessons can all of us in modern society, whatever we may think about that at the moment, what can we learn from it and what can we apply to our own lives? It's very easy to say that humanity is a damaged species. That's something I don't really go along with. I would, it's very easy to, to portray the human race as being currently dysfunctional. If you look through history, the human race has always been portrayed as dysfunctional by someone in charge. Yeah. It's always been a way to control us. You're, the world is a mess. People are a mess. Here's the solution. Mm. So it's very, I'm not, I've often been very suspicious of that idea. What I, what I learned most of all from this, like since I was 11 years old to today, it, looking at this topic, is that the power of human consciousness is really what's up for grabs here. And if we can understand that, 
we can actually not now I'm not going to say we can build utopias or we can solve all our problems it's always an individual thing that we as individuals can develop the consciousness firewall I've been saying that in all my books for years to beat the the machinations of this control structure and the best way to do that is to look how someone how how individuals and groups survived it in the past mm. transcended it in the past people today have give the freemasons a very bad name wit you know they 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 did become corrupt they have become corrupt in some places but the purpose of the freemasons they were the ones who were defending the ancient knowledge from the catholic church particularly the vatican this is what their initial purpose was they were keeping secrets that the Vatican wanted to keep for themselves alive and spreading through networks. This is why it, well, you could be automatically excommunicated and still officially can for, for a Catholic join a Freemasonic order other than, say, one of their own, like Opus Dei or, the, or, or one of their own other groups like uh, the Jesuits or, or Propaganda Due in, in Italy. Yeah. You know, you can be but, but join any kind of regular Freemasonic group. You instantly can be instantly excommunicated. In the past, you could be murdered. This is because they were keeping the secrets of the Druids alive. It's uh, what's happened in recent times is not a reflection of where Freemasonry originally started out. There was a tremendous corruption took place when Adam Weistop formed a Beler- the Bavarian Illuminati and basically busted into the Grand Orient Lodge in Paris and completely bribed everybody and destroyed it. Mm. Prior to that, Freemasonry was nothing like that. That's why it attracted people like men like the caliber of William Stukeley and, you know, Edmund Halley, Isaac Newton, you know, Mozart. These were great men. These were not scumbags. Mm. This is why they became Freemasons because they believed another kind of world was possible. And why this stuff matters today is because it may, when I stand, when I stand and look, say a place like in Gozo and Malto, there is the ruins of a Roman viaduct. Nearby is something called the Temple of Gigantia, a Neolithic structure. They say it's 6,000 years old. Well, the Roman viaduct nearby is built from the same stone. It's 2,000 years old, and it looks almost brand new. The Temple of Gigantia, the stones are worn away to nothing. They're probably 10,000 plus years old. And when I look at those stones and see 60 foot, 60 ton boulders lifted 30 feet off the ground and put into a slot, something we can't do today. When I stood under the trilatons in the center of Stonehenge, something you see from a distance. When you're standing there and you see something the size of a double decker bus, 30 feet in the air over your head, and we can't do that today. And how these people did it in ancient times. What it makes you realize that human beings can do anything. Yeah. You can do anything. Right? And the only reason that we can't do anything is because limitations imposed upon us through education, through politics, through social conditioning. And this is the, this is the ultimate, should I say, re- resolution of my own work is the realization that no matter what goes on in the world, no matter who Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton gets in, or Trump gets in power, mm. that a water charge is coming on, that the EU becomes some kind of monolithic, you know, super state, 
at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because I can stand in a field in Sligo and I can look at artwork that was carved by someone probably five, six, seven, eight thousand years ago. And his mark or her mark still exists to this day, still causes me wonder because what he did was make a petrified version of his consciousness and projected into the future as an act of magic. So a fellow like me could be sit there one day and look up and say, well, feck me, the psychopaths are not going to win. And that's why it matters. And that's a beautiful thing to say because you've really tied the beginning and the end nicely together because ultimately, my opinion as well is that we are here to create. We're here to create magic as you have described it. And if we're not creating, as so many people aren't in so many ways, if you're not following your magical truth, the magical truth for me is to make music or to write. And there are plenty of things that I do. They're not for public consumption, but I create them because that's what I want to do for me. And it, it, it inspires me in other ways and gives me energy and all this kind of thing. But there are so many people who, because of the control system that you've described, they don't do that or they feel that they can't do that because they have to chase after something material or they have to do whatever it is that their father did or their mother did before them or whatever, and they ignore their own magical truth and they don't create what it is that they want to create or they feel they should be creating. And ultimately, for me, that's why I'm here. It's to create and to pass that down then to other people as well so that in another 5,000 years' time, no matter what ills are going on in society or in the constructed world, that somebody can look at those creations or hear those creations or feel the vibrational energy of those creations, perhaps, and can in some way be inspired to continue that for generations to come. I, I think that's what we're here to propagate. Ultimately, if you take the biology out of things, on an energetic and spiritual level, we're here to propagate creativity and magic. And I think what you've spoken about, Thomas, for the last, whatever it is, hour and ten minutes or so, has just... I don't know, it's clarified that for me in a way that nobody has managed to articulate to date, not just on this show, but in the reading that I do and the listening that I do on a constant basis. I don't know how best to describe this, but for me, I can feel the energetic meaning in your words and the way that you articulate them and the fact that you live them as well. That's the biggest one for me. The fact that you can back it up and you can tell anybody else to feck off if they question what it is you're talking about because you've actually lived it and continue to do so. And I think that's just hugely commendable. I've been, I've been quite touched by what you've said here today. It's, it's, it's meant a lot to me on a personal level. I've been able to relate to it on a level that I rarely relate to much of the information that I come across. And I have to say thanks very much for it because this has been pretty spectacular for me personally and I hope the listeners will find the same thing. Well, I'm very glad to hear you say that, John, and I appreciate you and thank you for saying it. Look, what you said, you, you, I didn't have to, your own words tonight. I don't, I don't even have to explain to you. You already know anyway. The, the ultimate meaning of the Druid Code to put it down to basic sort of terms, is inside your consciousness is the, the ability through your creative processing to build a spaceship. You can build it a spaceship as a material piece of artwork in, in, in this reality, as a song, as a book, as a sculpture, as a poem, as an idea. And then you just build it in this reality in a magical process and then fire it off into the future. That's what Joseph Campbell called his non-earthly children. That's what he called them, the idea of your creativity being your non-earthly children. And that's the purpose of it. And when you sit there and you see that artwork from 5,000, you run your fingers through it and you say that this man or this woman who built that, they're here now. They're here now yeah. in me touching it. 
And that's that's what it's all about. And like, there's no solution in the political system. There's no solution in the legal system. There's no solution fighting the man straight up. Where the solution is, is to bypass that and already plan for the future. And how you do that is the magic of creativity. And that's the Druid Code. Strong words indeed. And speaking of which, I can't let you go without talking about the velocity of now because we get many strong words on that on a very regular basis. And you're back in the swing of things with that. So tell people about the radio show. The velocity of now is on. Uh, I'm running completely now on uh, my YouTube channel because yeah. I can. There's loads of reasons for that. The, the, there's no problem with broadcast quality. I can pre-record it, upload it. It's just the easiest one for me. And that's that's a. Uh, that's just me. That's if you had a conversation with me. That's how I am. I don't. I don't have an image. I don't have a persona. I don't. I'm not interested in being a guru. What you. You know. I'm the same guy who writes my books. That does my radio show. That talks to you. That can go down to the pub and have a pint with me. Which reminds me. Next time with Sligo, we must have a pint. I'll, I'll take you around some of the sites. Sounds great. I'd be well up for that. And I think it's long overdue at this stage. Definitely. So how can we get the book? How do people get their hands on it? Because I know a lot of people don't necessarily like using Amazon. What's your preferred method that people can get their hands on it? Go to my website, thomasheridanarts.com, and they can buy it directly from the website, and it'll be posted out in a couple of days. Fantastic. I'll get the link up on the website. I'm a bit limited for time, but I really appreciate yours, Thomas. Thank you so much for the chat. There's so much more we could talk about. And I mean, there were other things that I wanted to talk about. So let's do this again sooner rather than later. One thing that just keep it at the back of your mind that I will be quizzing you on the next time is the fear bullock or the men of bags or men of stomachs and an ancient Irish people who seem to have something in common, something that people can look up for themselves to do with bags. Uh, with so many interesting entities all over the world through the ancient past. So that's something I want to have a chat with you about at some point, and maybe we can do a show on it in the future. I'm ready when you are. Fantastic. Thomas Sheridan, it's always a pleasure. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Thanks for joining me again on Alchemy. 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 I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are very, very grateful indeed for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on any donation and every little helps. So if, for example, you could spare even the price of a bar of chocolate, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Thank you, of course, to everyone for your recent help and support. We couldn't do it without you. In fact, you're the reason that we are continuing to remain on air. Our next guest is Todd Akamesis. And until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power.